Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Well, if you could uh, turn, please, in your Bibles to uh, Matthew's Gospel, to that passage that was read for us earlier, Matthew chapter 13, and those two short parables from verses 44 to 46. I have a a little guilty pleasure. Um, It's the TV programme Antiques Roadshow. Um, I don't... um, So some of you do too, do you? Yeah. Uh, I don't collect antiques. I don't own anything uh, old and valuable of the sort that uh, people take along to those roadshows up and down the country. Um, But I love the idea that someone somewhere has an undiscovered treasure or artwork that they bought at a car boot sale or in a charity shop or found in their loft or their garden. Um, And that idea of finding treasure is not a new one, of course. Uh, In the ancient world where marauding armies would sometimes sweep into your country and pillage your wealth, it was common for people to bury their treasure in the ground. Uh, Even today, metal detectorists, I don't know if we've got any among the congregation uh, this morning, um, they sometimes stumble across long-forgotten hordes of treasure like that. So when Jesus told the first of his parables here about the kingdom of heaven, he was tapping into that dream of discovering valuable treasure buried in the ground that was common even back then. Uh, The man in his first parable was probably a labourer working in someone else's field. And perhaps as he ploughed the ground, uh, the ploughshare hit a wooden box or a clay jar filled with jewels and gold. It's the kind of thing that most people dream of. I've dug my garden thoroughly from front to back. I've not found anything yet. Um, but I still dream about it. Uh, on the Antiques Roadshow, um, if you don't watch it, the big idea is um, that the people who bring the objects along generally don't know much about what they've bought or discovered. And they bring the item to an expert who gets the backstory on how they came to own it. Um, and if they bought it, how much they paid for it before the expert then gives their opinion of how much the item's worth. And I love seeing their reaction to the news. Uh, Of course, there are always those who have already convinced themselves prior to going on the show uh, that they have a fortune in their hands, uh, but then are disappointed by the valuation given. Uh, They'll often put a brave face on it and say things like, Oh, well, it's really just of sentimental value anyway. Um, But you know that's not what they're really thinking. Uh, But then there are those who are surprised by the good news that they are now significantly richer than they realised a few minutes earlier. 
And that then raises a dilemma, doesn't it? Particularly if the item is a family heirloom or a beautiful work of art. The dilemma is between the intrinsic beauty and value of the item as an artwork or its connection to the family heritage and the market value of it in pounds, shilling and pence. Some will say, oh, that's marvellous, uh, but of course uh, I won't be selling it. Um, but you can often see the glint in their eye as a, as a new car or a foreign holiday passes across their mind's eye. They know the right thing is to enjoy the item for its intrinsic beauty or for the memory of a loved one it conjures up. But they're now faced with the choice between that and what could be the wider potential benefits that its sale price could bring. Are they happy to just own the object, knowing its monetary value, or is there something they would prefer to own bought with the proceeds? And a similar question is raised by the two parables here. Um, it wasn't a hard question for the two central characters to answer, of course. They both immediately sold everything they had to buy the treasures they discovered. The main point of Jesus' two parables here, of course, is that the kingdom of heaven is a treasure worth selling or giving away everything you own to possess. Uh, in fact, I think Jesus is actually going a little bit further than that. And he's saying that if you want to possess the kingdom of heaven, you will have to give everything for it. And we know that, I think, because in the second parable, he likens the kingdom of heaven, and read it closely, to the activity of the merchant in searching for and acquiring the pearl, rather than the pearl itself. He says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Jesus is saying that if we want to have the kingdom of heaven, we will need to be like the merchant, making it our life's aim and purpose to seek it and give everything to have it. Uh, perhaps you've never seen it that way before. Um, I don't know very many people here. Um, maybe you've been coming here for a few weeks or longer and you think it's a good thing to go to church and of course the free coffee and pastries and so on are a definite plus. So you don't get those at our church in the morning. Um, but, but you're not sure that you would ever consider that being a follower of Jesus was something worth giving up everything to possess. Of course, nobody's actually suggested that you should do that so far. Uh, they're all very nice people here. But if they did, uh, even though it was Jesus who said so here, you're not yet convinced that the kingdom of heaven is worth giving up everything for. 
Uh, if that's how you're thinking, can I just ask you just to stay with me a little while longer as we try and understand why Jesus was so confident that the kingdom of heaven is worth us giving up everything we have for. Uh, before we do that, though, let me just explain a little more what Jesus meant by the kingdom of heaven. Uh, because I found that some people have a couple of misconceptions about it. A lot of people think Jesus is talking here about going to heaven. Um, in, in that popular way that we sometimes talk about it. Like, like when we're explaining to young children what happened to grandpa after he died. Uh, Grandpa's gone to a better place called heaven, we might say. Um, I think actually most people's minds. Um, heaven is actually not a better place than here, uh, but it's just a better place than the alternative. But many people imagine that Jesus is talking about going to heaven when he speaks of the kingdom of heaven here. Uh, like all Christians, um, I'm sure this church believes that uh, Jesus does promise his followers eternal life in a place called the new heavens and earth but which is usually abbreviated to heaven. But when Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven, he wasn't mainly talking about that. When Jesus spoke about the kingdom of heaven, he talked more about it coming here than about us going there. In his pattern for prayer that we know as the Lord's Prayer, he taught his disciples to pray for God's kingdom to come. When he started his preaching ministry, he would go around saying that the kingdom of God is near or at hand, meaning that, that it was coming soon. So God's kingdom or the kingdom of heaven, which is really just the same thing, is not so much a place but a thing. In fact, it really means the rule or the reign of God. And it can come into your life now. And when you welcome it and seek to obey it, it will continue for eternity, meaning that you will inherit eternal life in the new heavens and earth. But the point is that it's a present reality as well as a future hope. Jesus is saying that having God reigning in your life now is something worth giving everything else up for. But why are there two parables saying more or less the same thing? Uh, both men in the parables have to sell everything in order to possess the treasure and the pearl. But why say the same thing twice? The parables of Jesus, as you might know, are designed to get us asking questions like that. So the obvious question here is, well, what are the differences between the two? Um, well, the first treasure, I think, is what we would call a bargain, isn't it? Um, the poor labourer in the parable knew he was getting a bargain as he sold his possessions, perhaps he had another field or a house, uh, to buy this field that he was working in. Because he knew that the treasure 
would more than make up for the cost of selling his house. He'd be able to buy a bigger house and much more when he bought the field and dug up the treasure and sold it. I think that must be the implication. That's what he was wanting to do. But there's a difference between that accidentally uncovered treasure and the treasure found by the merchant in the second parable. This second man is searching for pearls, not stumbling across them by accident. Uh, Presumably, therefore, he's a pearl merchant and he's in the business of buying and selling them. The thing with this parable, though, is that what the man does doesn't totally make sense as good business practice. The merchant sells his stock of pearls, everything he has, in order to buy one solitary pearl of great value. The impression given is that he he does so simply because he must possess this most extraordinary and perhaps unique pearl. The thing is, it's not really a bargain as such, because it's already a pearl of great price. And he has no choice but to stump up the full value of it, because the current owner knows full well its market value. The difference here is that he simply must own it for its intrinsic value, its beauty. In his mind, it's worth selling everything to get it. And although it doesn't explicitly say so, we're led to believe that he has no plans to sell it. There's no pragmatic or economic reason for doing what he does in the second parable, unlike the first. The pearl is itself the reason to own it, like a valuable piece of art that you buy, just for the pleasure of having it on your wall, rather than as an investment or to sell later on. It's literally priceless to him. So there's a kind of progression in these two parables that starts with benefits and ends in beauty. The first treasure brings benefits to its owner, its new owner, and so he sells all he has to own it. But the pearl is sought by the merchant simply because of its unique beauty. The first parable is easy to identify with, isn't it? The man sold his possessions because the field and its treasure could be sold for a great deal more than he bought them for. Most people would do the same. The second parable is harder to put yourself into, isn't it? Unless some of you are already avid art collectors and your walls are filled with old masters or something. I don't know. Most people would do the same as the first man, but we find it a little bit harder, I think, to put ourselves in the place of the second man in Jesus' two parables, because it doesn't seem to make as much sense. Now, that's often how the parables of Jesus work. Uh, He used parables like these to get people thinking about important issues and questions. 
uh, perhaps we would all sell our homes and possessions in order to purchase the field with the treasure in it, having done the maths. But would we sell everything just to own something of unique beauty like the pearl? Well, let's just briefly think about those two reasons why, according to Jesus, we should give up everything we have in order to own the kingdom of heaven. And uh, the two main points uh, are benefits and beauty. No-brainer benefits and no equal beauty. So first of all, no-brainer benefits. Um, As um, the... uh, Sorry... Few troubles it. There we go. The uh, the first parable um, about the uh, the treasure in the field involves what's called a cost benefit analysis. Uh, the labourer, as he uncovered the treasure, he did a quick sum in his head, and estimated what it might raise if he sold the treasure. That's the benefit. And um, he, he kind of did a sum against the, um, the, the possible purchase price of the field, what the field owner might charge to sell the field to him. That is the cost. And so he did a, a, a cost-benefit analysis. Didn't take him long to work out that the cost, significant though it was, was actually far less than the benefit. Sorry. Technology is playing up this morning. The cost, significant though it was, was far less than the potential benefit, a cost-benefit analysis. So the first parable teaches us that the kingdom of heaven is worth the cost that we might have to pay in order to have it on account of the extraordinary benefit that it brings to our lives. Um, a word about the cost first, because, of course, if we're to do that cost-benefit analysis ourselves, we have to know what it's going to cost us, right? The first thing to say is that the kingdom of heaven comes to us completely free of charge, but at the same time, it costs us everything to have it. Yeah, I just did say that. I know it sounds like a contradiction, But just let me explain what I mean. Jesus taught that he came to this world to offer us the forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God at absolutely no cost to ourselves. The great anthem of the gospel message is that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. At the cross... Jesus gave himself freely so that our sins against God and against our fellow human beings could be forgiven. There is nothing that you or I can do to pay the penalty or the price that our sins deserve, that have clocked up against God. And the good news is that God has paid that price in Jesus. He did that at the cross that we've already sung about. This is what we call the grace of God in the gospel. It's wonderful. 
good news. The kingdom of heaven is free to enter through faith in Christ's death for us on the cross. However, Jesus also taught his disciples that before they followed him, they should count the cost. He once told another parable about a man who decided to build a tower. It's something that people did in those days. And he made the point that a wise man would make sure that he had the funds in the bank account to complete it at the outset. As he dug the foundations, Jesus said, a wise man would make sure that he's got everything in place to complete the project. So he didn't later look like a fool. You see, although forgiveness and eternal life with God cannot be purchased or merited by anything we can give or do, to follow Jesus by faith will involve a cost to us. We will almost certainly face opposition and even persecution perhaps in days to come. Sometimes that will be from those people who mean the most to us. There will also be the ordinary costs of following Jesus and serving him with our time and our money. These costs do not pay for our salvation, but they are incidental costs incurred in possessing it. The point is that in order to possess the kingdom of God, it has to be the most important thing in our lives, so important that we would, if required, give up everything else in order to keep it, even though it came to us for free. To not do that would be like someone who was, was given a, a priceless painting by Rembrandt or Picasso or something, worth millions of pounds. And then to say, well, I don't really want it. I can't afford the hooks to put it up on the wall. The wise person will count these costs before they publicly follow Jesus. But the point of the parables here is that these costs, like the picture hooks compared to the painting, are vastly outweighed by the enormous and eternal benefits or blessings of being in the kingdom of heaven. Let me just spell out some of the benefits of the kingdom of heaven under three headings. They all begin with L, so fairly easy to remember. The first one is learning. Um, the benefits of the kingdom of heaven start the moment that someone bows the knee to King Jesus and follows after him and learns from him. Uh, King David, who you might know about, uh, wrote many of the Psalms in our Bible. And he was a man who knew that he had found treasure in the kingdom of God. He, he writes about it extensively in his Psalms. As he, a king himself, meditated on the rule of God over, his, over himself and over his people, he realised how perfect and beautiful was his law, his statutes, his decrees. They are sweeter than honey, 
more precious than silver or gold, and in keeping them there is great reward, David says in Psalm 19. We perhaps don't say enough about this today in the church, but in keeping God's word, in living under the rule of his kingdom, there is great reward. Did you know that? There's enormous wisdom in in the word of God for us to live by. In the area of finances, for instance, great wisdom for us there. We live in a society which is overburdened by debt, people making foolish decisions about money. There's great wisdom about money in the word of God. In the area of relationships too, it teaches us how to live well in relationship with other people. There's an enormous need for that today, isn't there? Relationships are breaking apart. Families falling apart. There's great wisdom in the Word of God. Great benefit to be had through learning from Jesus. So learning is is the first benefit I want to share with you. The second is love. Lasting, unconditional, trustworthy love. We're no strangers to love, of course, but the love we can know from each other is so weak and partial, isn't it? Passing as well, and often conditional upon how we love in return. And of course, most of us are not great at loving others, are we? As we would like to be loved. But at the cross of Jesus, we see how God loves. His love goes further than ours ever would. It forgives and shows mercy as ours never could. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of love. And if you want to know the best of all love in your life, come to King Jesus and put your trust in his everlasting love. He will never fail you, leave you, or ever stop loving you. He's promised, and he has literally staked his life on it. Love is the second benefit that I want to share with you of the kingdom of heaven. And the third one is life. Learning, love, and life. The life that we are promised by Jesus is infinitely greater, sweeter, and more fulfilling than this life can ever be with its sorrow, its pain, and tears. Uh, Let me just read from Revelation 21, which describes what it will be like when the kingdom of heaven finally and completely comes down from heaven to earth, because that's what it promises. Um, The Apostle John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea, a source of distress to most Jews in those days. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. 
They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. It's poetic language, it's a vision, but he's describing how wonderful the life of God is that is promised to those in his kingdom. Do you long for a better life? Well, the life promised to followers of Jesus is both abundant and eternal. Why would anyone want to miss out on the benefits of the kingdom of heaven when the costs are so paltry by comparison? Like that undiscovered treasure in a field, you'd just be mad to pass it by. It really is a no-brainer. Well, no-brainer benefits and then secondly, no equal beauty. Uh, The kingdom of heaven is also like a pearl merchant searching for pearls who when he discovers one of great value or greatest value sells all he has in order to possess it. And this second parable takes the idea of treasure to a higher level. Here the treasure, although costly, is acquired not because it has practical benefits but because it is just beautiful in its own right, worthy of praise and desirable to possess. Uh, With this parable, there's no cost-benefit analysis like the first. There's no profit made, no practical benefit gained except the intrinsic pleasure of owning it. One of the things that sets us apart, isn't it, from other creatures is that we can appreciate beauty for its own sake. Uh, Given the resources to do so, human beings have long made and collected what we call artworks that have no other purpose than being beautiful. And that longing to be surrounded by beauty comes from somewhere. Have you ever thought about that? It comes from being created by the author of everything that is beautiful. It comes from the one who himself is called the fairest of the fair, the rose of Sharon, the priceless pearl. He is the most beautiful being in the world, in the universe. Because in his perfection, he embodies all that is beautiful and lovely. Uh, We have no idea what Jesus looked like physically, but we're led to believe that he wasn't handsome Uh, to our way of thinking. However, wherever he went, great crowds of people followed after him. He was incredibly attractive. And when you read the Gospels, it's not hard to see why, is it? Jesus was a beautiful person who had compassion on the poor and the outcast. 
if you're unsure why the kingdom of heaven is so worthwhile having, go and read about its king, Jesus. And I'm sure you'll see why. The most beautiful moment of his life, though, was when he was overcome by the ugliness of human hatred. As he was hoisted and nailed to a Roman cross, his beauty shone all the brighter. He found within himself the grace to ask his Father in heaven to forgive those who had crucified him. Beautiful mercy. As he hung there in agony, he was concerned that his mother be taken care of. And so he instructed his best friend to take her into his home. Beautiful love. But most of all, he endured the shame and the excruciating pain so that whoever would believe in him would escape the punishment that their sins deserve. He didn't need to face death on his own account, but he went there for you and for me. There's an awesome beauty in the love of God displayed at the cross. And millions of people have found the beauty of Christ Jesus' love for us so compelling that they have risked all in order to follow him. And we heard a story about one this morning. I'd never heard that story about Lottie D. Moon before. Lovely. And if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, I want to urge you to give up everything too in order to have him as your king and your saviour. Can I just finish with the words of one man who who not only knew um, the priceless worth of owning the kingdom of heaven, but who also quite clearly saw the futility of holding on to his life and all he owned, and thereby passing up the chance to own the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Jim Elliot, the martyred Christian missionary to the South American Orca Indians, said before he gave his life to reach the Orcas with the gospel, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Unlike the man in the parable who had a choice in whether he disposed of his possessions, do you realise that you can't keep yours? However much wealth you amass in life, you will leave every penny every treasure, every possession behind. The Egyptian pharaohs and many others tried to take their precious grave goods to the next life, but you can see many of them in museums today and know that they failed. Why do so many people think that by holding on to this life and rejecting the kingdom of heaven that they're getting the best deal? No, the benefits of the kingdom of heaven far outweigh the benefits of grasping after all this world offers us. And they last forever. There are eternal benefits, but also exquisite beauty 
in the kingdom of heaven. Unlike someone on Antiques Roadshow, you don't have to choose between the benefits and the beauty. They come together. The kingdom of God is a treasure that has it all. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, can I urge you to carefully consider how the cost of following doesn't compare to the value of owning his reign over your life. Please would you speak to me or another Christian that you know here about how you can have Jesus as king of your life. But if you're already a follower of Jesus, and I know that many of you are, can I urge you to ask yourself the question that you should already have asked yourself several times now, many times now if you've been a Christian for many years, do I still consider that knowing and having Jesus as my Saviour and King to be worth giving up everything for. Can you honestly say that this morning? Would I sell my home, face persecution, lose my job, so that I might be found in him still? Uh, This is what the Apostle Paul said about it. He said, um, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which is through faith in Christ. Can you say that this morning? If you're a follower of Jesus, is he the greatest treasure that you have? And would you be prepared to give up everything in order to keep following him?